this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 984. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with practices and have put on new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. The word of the Lord. If you are, excuse me, if you are four years old to second grade, you are in the herd. Brady and Mallory are going to take you to away. So if you're four years old to second grade. That's a good taking away. By the way, just all the parents, I saw a lot of worried faces, big bug eye there. So that's good. How you guys doing this morning? Doing good? Good. Well, this morning, as you just heard from Mallory, um, what we have is uh, before us um, a a pretty glorious text, but a, a harder text. Okay. Um, Paul is going to turn on the heels upon what we heard Brady speak on last week. He taught us from verses 1 through 4, which are the foundation for what we're going to hear this morning. We're going to tie those two things together. You're going to see that in verse 5, right? It's the classic word, therefore, right? The Bible study little cliche phrase, which is a very good one, by the way, that we toss around is if you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. Paul's tying things together. And so when he comes around in verse 5 through verse 11 and says, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to think in regard to your spiritual growth in Christ. What he's doing is that he is completely, blatantly anchoring it into everything that we saw last week. But you're going to see that Paul is connecting um, the reality of our position in Christ to some very specific responsibilities for us as believers in Christ. So you're going to see this language of death, and you're going to see this language of putting things away, and Paul is tiring it and anchoring it back to our position in Christ. He's going to talk about things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, or greed, some of your Bibles may say. He's going to talk about heart attitudes like anger, wrath, malice. He's going to talk about actions of the mouth like slander, obscene talk or abusive speech, lying to one another. What Paul's going to do is to take these two realities that are before us. 
is going to take the reality that you, as a believer in Christ, me as a believer in Christ, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because of what Christ has done in your life and what Christ has done in my life, we have a position in Jesus Christ. We have union with Christ. Another way to say it is this. We have an identity in Christ. It's one of the hardest things for us to grasp onto as Christians, as believers, is that you have a new identity. You have actually been made new by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. But because of that reality, what we don't do is then sit back, cross our arms, and just assume that we're going to somehow magically grow in the Christian life by being passive because of our position in Christ. But Paul's going to directly connect this idea of our being active, actively killing sin because we have position in Christ. And so when we think about what Paul is going to tell us this morning, he's really going to boil it down to this idea, that a believer's position in Christ will lead to sin-killing activity. These aren't foreign concepts for Paul. Paul doesn't say, you have been made new in Christ, now just sit back and hope you grow in holiness. And what he also doesn't say is, kill sin, try to put sin to death, grow into holiness so that you can have a right relationship with Christ. That's putting the cart before the horse. Paul is going to specifically tie together these two ideas. Fact, you once were dead in sin. But now you've been made alive. That means, translation, you have position in Christ. And because of that position in Christ, that means you, believer, you and I, have a responsibility. We are to put sin to death. That's the language he's going to use up. He's going to take up imagery of death, death kind of language. And he's also going to say, you are to put sin away. The idea behind that, the word behind that idea is this. The idea of taking off, stripping off dirty clothes. So sin is something to be stripped off, to be put away, and sin is something that is to be put to death. A believer's position in Christ will lead to sin-killing activity. So the first thing we're going to see is this. Paul is going to turn to the imagery of putting sin to death. Believers are to put sin to death. So in your copy of Scripture, in verses 5 through 7... Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, this list of five things that I've just told you about, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when... You are living in them. When Paul turns to this imagery of putting sin to death, what Paul is doing is saying, Believer, you have a responsibility to wage war against the indwelling sin that remains in your body. Sin is an absolute distortion of all that is good and right because at its root, sin is a preference for anything that is above God. Sin is treasuring anything more than it treasures God. So if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we put that sentence before you. That two-blank sentence, if I can only have blank, 
then I would be this. If I could only have a new job, if I could only have more money, if I could only have obedient children, if I could only have a relationship, if I could only have friends, if I could only, if I could only, whatever we put in that front blank, if only I can have this, then I'll have life. Then I'll really be free. Then I'll really have fullness. And what we said was, it's really important that we start figuring out and thinking through what we stick in that first blank, that first part of that sentence, because anything other than Jesus Christ in there, it's really a big deal. Because whatever we are sticking in that front part of the sentence, what we're doing is saying this, Jesus, I see you, but you are not enough to bring fullness. You are not enough to bring life. You are not enough to bring freedom. What I need is really this thing. And Paul is saying it's those kinds of things that reach out and tell us, I am what is more pleasurable than Jesus Christ. We don't play around with those things, whatever those things are in your life. Sin is a distortion because sin comes along and says, treasure me more than you treasure God. I am where life is. I am where freedom is. I am where fullness is. The sole aim of sin is to deceive us away from the infinite pleasures we have in Christ to the false pleasures that sin offers freely and readily and happily to us. And it's for this reason Paul says you need to put sin to death. Sin is not something to be trifled with. Our culture today has a very, very low view, if any view, of sin at all. We don't coddle sin. We don't swaddle like a baby. We don't bring it close close to us. We don't toy around with it. We don't see how close to the line we can get to it. Paul's attitude towards sin is to be our attitude towards sin. Sin is not jokey. It's not something to be handled lightly. Paul takes up warrior language. He takes up warlike language. He takes up death language. He says we are to view sin as an enemy of the soul and we are to seek with the power of the spirit to put sin to death. We are to kill it. We are to make war against it. We are to take whatever steps necessary to eliminate sin from our lives. We are to deal ruthlessly with it, to deal radically with it, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant that little thing that's just sort of toying for your attentions, drawing you away from complete satisfaction in God. What you are to do is identify it for what it is, a complete and absolute enemy of your soul. So this is why Paul writes in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. And he gives a list of five things. And if this first list of five things, he's going to give a second list down in verse 8. But in this first list of five things, a lot of these ideas, a lot of these words revolve around the idea of sexual sin. So the first thing that Paul says is you need to put to death sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in this instance refers to sexual intercourse outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. So what Paul is saying here, it's this word that we get, and we touched on it two weeks ago, it's this word that we get our word pornography from. It's the word porneia. And what it is, is this, in, in the context of Paul's day, yes, we get the singular word pornography from that word porneia, but it was a bit of a bigger bag, a bigger, bigger idea in Paul's day. When you saw the word porneia in the language that Paul was writing it, it should bring to mind these kind of ideas. Any sexual activity between those who are not married, 
Any sexual activity between two men or between two women or among more than two persons or between family members or between those married to other people, all of these things fall into the category of what sexual immorality is. It is this kind of thing that Paul says is not to mark believers. For, For believers, the gospel revolutionizes the way that we think about sex. We talked about this on a whole sermon back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus addressed the issue of lust. God is not anti-sex. God is the creator of it. God delights in it. It is good and it is to be had, but it is to be had within the boundaries that God sets. The boundaries of one man, one woman within marriage. If you find yourself in that, God says, have at it. Go for it. I designed it to be enjoyed within that boundary. The idea of sexual immorality, porneia, is any form of sexual expression outside of that. So Paul is saying, if you are a believer, the temptations that come your way that seek to pull you from without the boundaries that I have set up, those are the kind of things that we ought to seek and strive to put to death. Impurity is closely tied to the idea of sexual immorality. Whereas sexual immorality refers more specifically to the physical acts, this idea of impurity refers more to the thoughts of the mind. It refers to a person's sexually immoral thoughts. So Jesus said something along these similar lines. That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within her heart. That comes all the way back from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. So notice what Jesus is saying there. He's not saying only once you commit the physical act, then that's adultery. He says you can get there very quickly by just mind and heart giving yourself over to these things. And it's Paul who's saying believers are to have nothing to do with this way of thinking. Next, Paul goes on and he talks about this idea of passion and desire. Now, granted, passion and desire in the Bible does show up in places where it is a good thing. It is right to be passionate. It is right to have good and right desires. But we see from the context here that Paul, where he puts it in that list of five things, and the way he describes that desire is evil desire, what he's saying is, but there is a way that passion and desire can quickly leave the realm of being good things and fall to the realm of being bad things. So in the context of this list, the idea behind passion and evil desire refers to sexual longings that are inappropriate for God's people. Now notice I said there are sexual longings that are inappropriate, which I'm implying is there are sexual longings that are appropriate. Again, just backtracked about five minutes ago. God is the designer of sex. It's to be good. You are to have longings for your wife. If you're a wife, you're to have longings for your husband. That is the way that works. But there is a way for us to have passions and evil desires, specifically in regard to sexual longings that move us beyond the realm of God's good boundaries. And lastly, Paul turns to this idea of believers are to put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, when you're reading this thing here, and you're just trucking along through Colossians 3, 1, 3, 2, all the way to verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and you come here, put to death, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And you're like, okay, I see how those things might go together. Then all of a sudden, there's just sort of like, what? Greed? Covetousness? Idolatry? What does that have to do with anything that he's just mentioned in all those first four things that we've just talked about. What's the connector there? I think the connection is this. The reason why Paul mentions covetousness or greed last 
is because greed is the root from which all the previous sins spring. Simply defined, greed is this. Greed is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. It's so giving your heart over to that object, that person, that idea, whatever it is. It's so giving yourself over saying, I just have to have this. I just have to have this. I just have to have this. So much so that you begin to think that my only hope of contentment is not in God, but my only hope of contentment will be found in this object that I'm seeking after. So greed becomes idolatry because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, it starts to get from something else. And in this case, in this list, Paul is calling believers to put to death the heart attitude of greed, which finds contentment in sexual sin and just not from God. That's how that works together. So all these things Paul says are sin, and Paul writes that on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because this is true, they are to have nothing to do with this conduct. In these sins, they too once walked when they were living in them, but now by the power of Christ's death and resurrection, they have been redeemed from this manner of life. They are to remember that their new position is in Jesus Christ. The gospel has saved them, and the gospel has radically changed them. Christ was killed for their sin, and in that death, they have been united, and in that death, they have died to the dominion of sin over them. Therefore, Paul says, do not be asleep, do not fall into a stupor, do not be complacent, but because you have been united to Christ's death, and you have died to the power of sin because you have been united to Christ's death, therefore, turn around and kill any remaining sin that is lingering and seeking to pull you back into and under the dominion of sin. Believers are to put to death sin that still lingers and remains, but they are also to put sin away. And for this idea, Paul turns to the imagery of dirty clothes. Look at verses 8 through 11 in your copy of Scripture. Believers are to put sin away. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, some of your translations might say rage. Put away malice or put away malicious behavior. Put away slander. Put away obscene talk, abusive speech. Put away filthy language that seeks to degrade and look down upon others. Don't let these things mark what comes out of your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. So sin is not only something that we are to put to death, but sin is like a piece of dirty clothing that we are to strip away from our body. So not only are we to deal with sexual sin by putting it to death, But we are also to deal with the indwelling sin that remains in our hearts by stripping it away like you strip away a set of dirty clothes at the end end of a long work day, right? If you've ever been outside, you've ever been working, and you've just ever been sweating, and it's just, you're dirty, and the clothes feel dirty, and they're sort of clinging and sticking on you, what you don't do is walk around just feeling fresh. 
what you do is you walk around going, man, I need to get these things off, right? You want to you get out of them, you want to hop in the shower, you want to get cleaned up. Paul says that indwelling sin that remains, you're no longer under the dominion of sin because you've died with Christ. That, that link to the dominion of sin is now gone, but there is still indwelling sin that remains that still fights for the, the attention of the pleasures of your heart. And what you're to do is to take that off, strip it off, put it away. So Paul writes that we are to put away the hard attitudes of anger, wrath, and malice. Anger is that deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness, which is the the heart attitude of that angry person. Wrath is that sudden outburst of that smoldering anger aimed at somebody. So Paul says the heart attitude of anger, which just is resentful and bitter and constantly churning against someone, we're not to have that just smoldering in our heart. But even that sort of just quick outburst, that person who comes along and just stops your plans, isn't on board with where you're going with life, that one conversation where they say something and that smoldering heart works its way up to its mouth and out of your mouth comes violence and poison and death and fire and destruction. Malice is the vicious nature of someone's heart which is just bent on doing harms to others. We've seen or have bumped into people who have malicious intent. You just can't figure out, like, like what's, what's their deal? They just seem bent on destroying you, destroying something, cutting you down, hurting you. It's that heart that is completely sold out that I will find pleasure. I will find enjoyment. If only I can make you feel small. If only I can hurt you. If only I can cut you down. If only I can make you feel little. And when you add these three things together, what you often find is that slander, abusive speech, and lying are not far behind. If your heart is consumed with anger, wrath, and malice, it's not an illegitimate connection to see how slander, speaking ill of somebody, how obscene, abusive speech would just come out of your mouth, how lying to somebody would become the pattern of life for you. And Paul looks directly at the Colossians through the writing of his letter. And he says, listen, what you need to know is this. You must remember that we are to strip off these old sinful habits. You used to walk in them. They used to mark you. But now that you have a new position in Christ, see to it that you put off the old self, he says, with its practices. These are practices that identify your old identity. In the old sinful self that you used to be. But now you have a new identity, a new position in Christ, a new union with Christ. And there are to be practices that mark out you as a person who is united with Christ. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Those are not things that are to mark out Christians. United to Christ by faith, our old sinful man has died. And when Christ died, we died in him, and our old self is now dead to the dominion of sin. And when Christ was raised, we were raised in him, and our new self is now in the growth process of being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's for this reason that Jesus is creating a new humanity, and Paul goes there in verse 11. Because when you read verse 11, that sort of feels weird too. He's saying, put to death what's earthly in you, and... Put away all these things. Do not lie to one another. Then all of a sudden it's like he's just talking about Greeks and Jews and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. It's like, what's this? Like just a Rolodex of people in his contact card? I'm like, well, what's he doing right now? 
stream of conscious thought where he's just like, man, you know, don't be renewed in the knowledge. Man, you know, I'm just thinking about Greek and Jew, and he's just sort of writing stuff down. It's like, that's not how it goes. What he's saying is this. In your union in Christ, you are part of a new humanity. You're part of God's people. You're part of a new creation. So all of us who would stand up here and say, I've been made new in Christ. I repented of my sin. I've turned from sin. I've placed my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. The language that the Bible says of you now is this, is that you are a new creation. And that new creation joins with another new creation, joins with another new creation, another new creation. We form a church. And then all those churches that are made up of new creations link with all of these other churches that are made up of new creations. And what we have presented before us in the New Testament is this, a new humanity that has been redeemed, restored, forgiven, and made right by the blood and work of Jesus Christ. And to claim that Christ is all is to claim that Christ is the center point both of this new creation and of their redemption. The one in whom and through whom all things hold together. But not only that, Paul says Christ is in all. In that he is the one who indwells all believers who make up this new humanity of redeemed sinners. So what that means is you and I look at each other now and I don't go, well, you're white and I'm black and you're smart and you've got more degrees than Fahrenheit and I've only barely graduated high school and you're rich and I'm poor and you're here and I'm there and you're in the affluency and I'm living in poverty. It's no longer, that's not what identifies us as a people of Christ. This is identity language here. And what Paul is doing is saying, we have a new identity in Christ. You go to Ephesians chapter 2, Jew and Gentile was one of the most severe, uh, the most severest of racial tensions in the day. But Paul says that dividing wall of Jew and Gentile has been destroyed by the gospel. And the church has come together and has been formed. And what we now have is a new creation, which is called the church. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in these verses. So it's interesting that what we have here is when you scale back and go, okay, so, so, so what are we saying here? So when you reach into last week, when Brady was talking about verses 1 through 4, and when you grab verses 9 through 7 today, what we have is a big sandwich. The two pieces of bread are what Brady talked about last week and what we just saw today. This afternoon, I'm probably going to go home and have a sandwich. What Paul's talking about here is this. It's a position in Christ sandwich. What he's saying is this, old man died, new man in Christ. You're being renewed, you're being created. Remember who you are in Christ. Last week, remember this, you have died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Know your position in Christ. And the meat and the fillings and the cheese and the mayo and the mustard and the mayonnaise and everything that's in between is verses 5 through 9. Because of these two realities of your position in Christ, what it's to do is spill over into this reality. We have a responsibility to live out of our new position in Christ, putting sin to death, putting sin away, just like we strip off dirty clothes. So if this is what Paul is saying, what should our response be to this? How do we respond to this? Like, what what does this look like? Putting to death sin. Putting away. I mean, it sounds great in theory, right? Great language, Paul. What does that mean for me? I think what we have to remember is this. If the heart cry of every person who has been truly saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that desires to kill sin. Before you were saved, before you were made right with God, your heart had desires. 
and it was this. I'm going to get what I can get for me. I'm going to run after sin, and I don't want anything to do with God. The gospel comes and saves you, rips out the old desires, plants new desires in. New desires to seek after Christ, set your mind on Christ, run after Christ, love Christ, put sin to death, grow in holiness, be conformed into the image of Jesus. The gospel places a new desire in our heart, a desire to do away with sin, mature into conformity with the one who was killed for our sin. We died with Christ to our old ways. We've been raised with him in his new ways. And because of this position in Christ, our lives are to be radically different, radically sin-denying, and radically Christ-affirming. That's not a newsflash for most of us. Most of us go, I get that. I understand it. I get the categories. Position in Christ is supposed to lead me to sin-killing activity. But let me be honest with you. My position in Christ, and I look at my life where it is right now, what I do not see is a life given over to sin-killing activity. What I look at is I look at my life and I see this, that sin is killing me. Sin's killing me. I'm not putting sin to death. Sin is putting me to death. It's having its way with me. It's eating my lunch. It's taking me to the whipping post. Whatever you want to do, you look and you go, the general ebb and flow of my life is this. I don't see a general trajectory of holiness. I don't see me having victory over sin, if you want to use that kind of language. Because if all of us were honest with ourselves, most of us don't find ourselves in this place, this sort of position in Christ sandwich that Paul puts forward before us. We don't find this. We can't raise our hand and go, that is my everyday living. I don't know what Paul's talking about. He makes it sound like it's a little bit hard, but I don't know. Maybe I'm better than Paul. I don't know. That's just not a problem for me. Like most of us aren't raising our hand, jumping jumping into that line. That's just not our common reality. All of us struggle in our temptation to sin. And we all seem to have that besetting sin which clings to us and it just won't seem to die. And after days and weeks and years and seasons of struggling with sin, we begin to doubt and we start asking ourselves questions like this. What hope do I really have of being able to put this sin to death? Will I ever truly break free from this sin? Am I doomed to just forever be under the dominion of this thing? And when we ask these kinds of questions, what we're really wanting to know is this. How do I defeat sin? I mean, I want to defeat sin. I want to grow and mature in Christ. My assumption is you do too. That is the heart cry of the believer. God, my sin pinned you to the cross. I don't want to keep dipping in and running back to that filthy well of what puts you onto the cross. I want to grow in holiness. I want to mature in Christ-likeness. So all of us are asking the question, so how do I defeat sin? How do I actually mature in Christ, kill sin, and grow spiritually? All of us want to know this. All of us want to be free from the grip of sin's paralyzing, paralyzing grip upon us. I think what we have to do in order to answer these questions, at least begin to answer these questions, is we must remember at least two things. The first thing we have to remember is this. That in our fight to put sin to death, we have to remember the insidious nature of sin. We have to remember the insidious nature of sin. In our battle with temptation, we often fail to understand the source of sin's allure. 
sin is hard to resist because it has a remarkable capacity to please, right? I hardly ever find myself doing this. Temptation to sin comes. I don't lean on Christ. I walk into that temptation to sin and go, man, that was really horribly unpleasurable in the moment. No, the only reason why I walked and gave myself over to that temptation to Christ is because it presented itself as extremely pleasurable. Yes, the pleasure that sin brings, it's passing, it's transient, it's fleeting, but it is still pleasure nonetheless. And that's why we so willingly give in to sin. We sin because it feels good. That's why we give ourselves over to sin. That's the insidious nature of sin. That in that moment of temptation, the immediate pleasurable gratification of sin is almost always going to triumph over the fear of its long-term consequences. So since this is true, if, if this is the picture that Scripture paints of sin, is that it, it comes to us cloaked in the garment of, hey, I'm pleasurable, and I'm, actually, if you just think about it a little bit, I'm more pleasurable than Jesus. That's the kind of language that sin uses to us. If this is true, how do we fight against the pleasure of sin? When sin comes and says, I'm better than Jesus, what do we do? I love this quote by Sam Storms. He says, we certainly don't don't resist the pleasures of sin by resting in our own strength. He says that if all we bring to bear against the incredibly powerful allure of self-indulgence, of the pleasures of sin, if all we bring against this is a just-say-no campaign, we don't stand much of a chance. Any approach to resisting temptation that consists solely of a teeth-gritting, fist-clenching, will-racking resolve not to yield will ultimately fail. So we don't lay waste to sin by merely having prohibitions. We do have prohibitions. Paul has just given us 10 of them. But those prohibitions are rooted in a power deeper than merely a list of do nots. We must remember the second thing. We must remember the insidious nature of sin is the power to come and disguise itself saying, I am more pleasurable than Jesus. But the other thing that we must remember is this. We don't fight sin by merely building up a wall of do not commands, but we fight sin. We fight the pleasure of sin with pleasure in Jesus Christ. What we do is we outpleasure pleasure. We kill pleasure with pleasure. We fight pleasure with pleasure. The only way to defeat the power of sin's promise of pleasure is by faith in God's promise of a superior pleasure. We fight sin with the infinite pleasures that we have in Christ. This is your power for purity. This is how you and I put sin to death. This is how we put them all away. This is how we do not lie to one another. I mean, it really does just boil down to this. We are to continually increase in the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's no mistake that Paul says that our new self is being renewed. Being renewed how? In knowledge. Growing in knowledge. According to our creator, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I've touched on this two weeks ago, but this is a theme that Paul keeps bringing up over and over and over again. What he's saying is this, we have to give ourselves to the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about mere head knowledge. I'm not just talking about facts. I'm not just talking about having a seminary degree, you're reading a lot of books, studying commentaries. There are seminary professors who have an extreme knowledge of Christ, but who are walking in sin. There's pastors who know Jesus, but are going to hell because they're not fighting sin. When Paul talks about this knowledge language of being renewed in knowledge, increasing in the knowledge of God, of seeing Jesus Christ and savoring Jesus Christ, who is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge, what he's saying is this, I want your heart to be so consumed with the infinite pleasures that you have in Jesus Christ that whenever sin comes your way, offering up a puny pleasure disguised as something great, what we do is we look at that and we don't just build up a bunch of walls. What we do is go, I'm going to put that pleasure to death by gazing, soaking, seeing, savoring, seeking, setting my mind on the pleasures of Jesus Christ. That is how we grow in Christ-likeness. That is how we grow in Christ-likeness. Seeing and savoring Christ for all that he's worth. I mean, just think about it. Look, look in your Bible there. The, when you look at chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, where Paul actually starts talking about the false teaching that was going on in Colossae, what is his summary conclusion? These people, he says, are making up rules. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. But what does verse 23 say? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, but in reality they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he says, here's what's going on, Christians. People are coming along and saying, do you want to grow to be like Jesus? And they say, yes, I want to grow to be like Jesus. These false teachers came along and said, then listen, make a bunch of rules. Make sure you never go down that road. Build up these things. And he says, listen, when they're telling them to you, they sound so wise. But in reality, they are Christless. They actually have zero ability, zero value in them in being able to stop the indulgence of the flesh. So just think about it. Paul does not go from verse 23 to say, hey, their rules don't have any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then jump straight to verse 5 of chapter 3 say, now let me give you ten rules. No sexual immorality, no this, no that, and anger and wrath and malice, do, 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 do. And so then you're sitting there going, what, is it his rules? There's a reason why Paul makes a pit stop in verses 3, 1 through 4. What's the reason for the pit stop in verses 3, 1 through 4? He takes Jesus Christ and he lifts him up. He takes Jesus Christ and says, seek, set, know, in the heart, know that Jesus Christ is so infinitely more pleasurable than anything the world could ever possibly offer. And out of that, then you go forward and you start laying sin to death. There are rules that we follow in the Christian life, but they are rooted and grounded in knowing that Jesus is more pleasurable than that singular sin that is rolling around in your mind right now that constantly chews you up and spits you out. The reason why Paul calls us to seek and set the things that are above where Christ is and to set your minds on things that are above is because Christ is supremely worthy to be sought after. Paul, in that pit stop of verses 1 through 4, he's not calling us to seek and set our mind on heart's affections, on something that's puny and substandard. 
What does he say? He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Christ is exalted. He has accomplished. He has finished. Everything on your behalf has been done, wrapped up in a little bow and presented to you in Jesus Christ. And so he says, seek, set, know the exalted Christ. Paul is calling us to meditate on the majesty of being raised with Christ. That is a pleasure that we are to know. We are to fix our souls on the splendor of his exaltation. That is a pleasure that we are to know. We are to celebrate our concealment with Christ in God. That is a pleasure that we are to know. We are to know the joyful expectation of experiencing his glory when he comes. That is a pleasure to know. And those are all four pleasures that came from the first four verses of chapter 3. Those are just four verses of one chapter of the entire New Testament. Four pieces of scripture that give us four realities. So whenever that temptation to come in sexual morality, when that temptation to come to look at pornography, when that temptation comes to undress your coworker at work and start having sex with her in your mind, that temptation to have anger in your heart, malice in your heart, to cut that person down, slander and abusive speech, how do you kill that in that moment? by knowing the pleasures of Christ. It's not by being duped into the pleasures of sin. Sin comes along and says, bro, click that link. Man, that's more pleasurable than Jesus. Sin comes along and says, cut that person down. That person's a fool. Stupid person. You're smarter than them. You can be better with them. So out of malicious intent, mouth opens, cut them down. Paul is calling us to meditate on the pleasures of sin. This is how we put sin to death. I was able to meet with some of the pastors this Friday morning, me, Charles, Tom. And I love what Pastor Tom said. He says his worry was this. His worry is that we severely overcomplicate this. My hope this morning is this, that in all my talking, I tend to get red-faced and I wave my hands like I'm fighting off bees, right? Walk into the spider web, you ever see that? That's how I preach. My, my hope in all of this is that I have not overcomplicated it. Because really it boils down to being this simple. And I'm about to give you the one answer that you hoped I wouldn't point you toward. It really does boil down to you. Opening this book and burying your face in it. Brady said it last week. I'm saying it to you this week. I know you're hating it. I'm a preacher for goodness sake. And I hate it when people tell me I'm supposed to be in this thing. And here I am giving you my own dose of medicine. Think of a firefighter who has a raging inferno in front of him. A house is set on fire. He's dispatched to the, to the scene. A wise fireman is going to get out his hose. He's going to run over to the fire hydrant because the fire hydrant is the source of infinite water that is going to pour out in a massive, powerful force. And so the firefighter goes, raging inferno, infinite source of water. I'm going to hook my hose up to it, and I'm going to run up to it. I'm going to set my feet. I'm going to open the hose. I'm going to let this thing rip. I'm going to fight this inferno hooked up and attached to the source, the hydrant. We would call the fireman a fool if he showed up on the scene, saw the raging inferno, house is burning down. He comes out, grabs his hose, runs up, looks back, sees his hose is not attached to the to the hydrant, shrug his shoulders and go, no big deal. 
and sit there and start going, acting like he's making water come out of the hose. That person is, in the truest sense of the word, a fool. He thinks he's actually accomplishing something, but he's accomplishing nothing. So why, as we as Christians, do we run into our lives and we see that blazing inferno of temptation right in front of us? That fire of immorality, sexual immorality, that fire of anger, wrath, malice, that fire of being tempted to lie at work. I mean, it's just roaring, blazing, consuming, coming to consume, to consume us. And we run up with the fire hose, and we set our feet, we look at that inferno, we look back and go, my hose really isn't attached to the hydrant source of infinite pleasures I have in Christ, but no big deal. My assumption is I'm still going to be able to beat this thing. So we set our feet, and we start thinking and living and acting like we're going to quench that inferno by not being attached to the fire hydrant to the source of infinite pleasure. It's no wonder that most of us are being killed by sin and not killing sin. It's because we're just simply not attached to this. Allow me to use my really awful illustration to supplant it onto the words that Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is this. This is an infinite source, a fire hydrant of infinite pleasure rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Take your stinking hose and hook it up to it. Bury yourself in it. Read it. Memorize it. Know it. Meditate on it. Chew it. Eat it. Think it. Breathe it. Pray it. Know it. Believe it. Trust in it so that when you come to that thing and go, man, I see sin, it's raging, it's an inferno, it's coming after me. And what I do is I set my feet and go, ha ha, I'm grounded in the pleasures of Christ. Jesus is more pleasurable than this thing that is seeking to consume me. And so what we do is we open up the fire hose of the infinite pleasures of, that we know about Christ from Scripture, and we just start quenching that thing. We start putting it to death. We start putting it away. We start laying it to death. Why? Not because we're smart or because we're powerful, but because we're hooked up into the power source of infinite pleasures, Jesus Christ himself, which is revealed to us in the Word. I mean, that's just the way it works. We overcomplicate it, and we hate that answer because it's not instantaneous. That's what it boils down to. That was the other thing that Pastor Tom said. He says, we overcomplicate this. It really just means this. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up. I'm struggling with anger in my heart. So what am I going to do? What I'm not going to do is go, anger is seeking to have my heart. Anger is designed to consume me. Angering wants to take me out, put me to death. I'm supposed to put it to death. So, I don't know, really don't have time this. And you go to work and what do you do? Your whole day is filled with, ah. Cut down, slander, anger, vitriol. A hard attitude that's just, your tongue is like a sword just cutting people down. Or, what we can do is go, man, the Holy Spirit brings to mind 1 Peter chapter 2. So I open up my Bible and I go read 1 Peter chapter 2. And I say, God, my heart is prone to anger, wrath, and malice this morning. I want to slander people when I get to work. Then we turn our attention. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Jesus, how did you leave me an example? Peter continues, so that you might follow in his steps. What steps did you walk, Jesus? Well, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That sounds like a promise. Do I have that same promise, the ability to be able to not have deceit, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech come out of my mouth? I think so. Because when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten with words, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. So now all of a sudden I have a promise in Scripture saying that just as Jesus was reviled and suffered, he didn't open his mouth and unleash a fury of hell and damnation. What he did was, in that moment, he left us an example of whenever these things might be the temptation in that moment, that you can actually close your mouth, kill that thing in your heart, and go, God, I'm just trusting you actually know what's going on in this moment. You have healed me. You have set me free. You actually died on that cross so that I might die to the sin, which is telling me right now it's more pleasurable to cut down your coworker in this moment. It's not as pleasurable to live to righteousness, but this promise rises to the surface. No, Jesus Christ did actually bear your sin in his body on the tree. Why? So that this result might take place. You would die to that sin and live to righteousness in that moment. That's promise. That's pleasure. That's me stepping back and going, man, I can actually do this. Because that Jesus Christ indwells me. That's why we have to just be reading this and knowing this so that in those moments the Holy Spirit can reach into the arsenal of Scripture and pull out all these pleasures and these promises that he's been storing up, storing up, storing up, storing up like an arsenal of weaponry. So when that moment comes and that sin is presenting itself as more pleasurable than Jesus, the Holy Spirit can reach into that armory, bring that piece of Scripture to mind, then we can take and wheel it and go, I'm not going to buy that load. I'm going to trust that Jesus is more infinitely pleasurable in this moment than that piece of Scripture. I'm telling you, I know it's not, that's the one thing you don't want to hear because <laughs> it's oftentimes the last thing that I want to hear. But saints, it really is that simple. We are to constantly be reading scriptures, mining out the promises that point us to the pleasures of Christ, ever increasing in our knowledge of God. And it is only when we are continually seeking and setting our minds on the infinite pleasures that we have in Christ that we then become equipped to fight the false pleasures of sin. This is what it looks like for a follower of Christ to fight pleasure with pleasure. Indeed, may we be a people who continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, putting to death and stripping off what is earthly in us, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. God, help us in this manner, and in Christ's name I pray, amen.